growing up in, when I was in school and later on in my undergrad degree, uh, when I was pursuing English, one thing I always noticed about writing essays and writing papers was that the introduction is always, was always the hardest part to write. So typically, uh, I would just sort of write the essay, get all my thoughts down and organize it, and then the very last thing I would do is write the introduction. Uh, we can ask our uh, resident English professor if, if that's wise or not, but that's what I always did because introductions were just hard. Like I just want to get right to the point and say what I want to say, uh, but it can be difficult to work it in well. And the same I've noticed is the case for crafting and preparing sermons. Uh, how do we sort of introduce and sort of cut to the chase quickly, but in a seamless way? And sometimes that's more difficult than others. Uh, but there's, there's often times where the Lord is just gracious and things sort of fall into your lap. And that happened for me this week as uh, I try to stay updated on cultural events and what's happening in, 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 in our culture. And one of the things that was all over the social media world, people all over the place on Twitter and Facebook and everything, everyone was talking about, I had friends messaging me this, asking my thoughts, was a particular bit of drama that happened with a famous football player. And his name is Drew Brees. He's a quarterback. And he's very well known. He's very, very good at what he does. And I guess there's a, a, a day, you know, we have a, we've made a holiday out of everything in American culture. And I guess there's a bring your Bible to school day. And I guess this is a day where Christian kids who are in the public schools are encouraged to bring their Bibles to school that day. And Drew Brees spoke at an event where he went to the school and he spoke and he encouraged kids to bring their Bibles to school on National Bring Your Bible to School Day. But then he fell under a lot of criticism and persecution because the group that hosted that event was a group out of Colorado Springs known as Focus on the Family. And they, from the culture's perspective, are anti-homosexuality. And so the culture was just enraged that Drew Brees would dare speak at an event hosted by this bigoted, terrible hate group that believes something as horrible as homosexuality is sinful. And so Drew Brees was just, just pressured by the media like crazy to give a response to this bigotry. And in my mind, he folded like a lawn chair. I was not promoting any group, and I certainly was not promoting any group that is associated with that type of behavior. I know that there are, unfortunately, Christian organizations out there involved in that kind of a thing. And to me, that is totally against what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian is love. It's respecting all and it's accepting all. I live by two fundamental principles. The first one is love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that one is self-explanatory. But the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this second principle means to love all, respect all, and accept all. Well, this kind of behavior, to fold under pressure, to give in to the pressure of the world, is not new. It's, Drew Brees was not the first one to do it. He won't be the last one to do it. This was happening in the first century. And Paul wrote to Timothy in the context of this very thing going on. And so if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We are going to see how Paul responds to a culture, to a situation where people are, if I may be bold, cowardly backstepping Christian truths. 
in Christian faith, and not wanting to be associated or publicly scrutinized for what the apostolic faith is and who the apostles themselves were. If you remember before our context last week, the larger scope of what's going on here is Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to not be ashamed of him. That's the overall context going on. Paul does not want Timothy to be ashamed of who Paul is. He's in prison and Paul says over and over, don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of my imprisonment. And we see the same thing with his doctrine as well. How is it that we are unashamed of the Apostle Paul. Well, we continue that line of thought beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read through the second verse of chapter 2. And I would ask if you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. Beginning in verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are well aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who, who will be able to teach others also. Well, we're going to end there as we continue to unpack this text. And what we're going to look at is sort of a threefold command uh, that Paul gives to Timothy here. Really, you could really take almost all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and put them together because it's just that whole journey from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is just filled with these check marks of Paul saying, do this, do this, don't do this. It's very pragmatic, these first two chapters, but we're going to focus in on these three, this threefold command, and I'm going to uh, title each of these to follow, to guard, and to pass. Follow, guard, and pass. The first commandment is to follow, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's first commandment to Timothy in the midst of these difficult circumstances is to follow something. Follow something. And what he tells him is to follow the pattern of sound words. Now, Paul used a bit of a, a bizarre word in the Greek, um, what the ESV renders here as pattern. The, the word he used is most often associated with architecture and developing a blueprint uh, in Greek literature. And it's also used for artists who draw out kind of an initial sketch before they go back in and, and fill it out. So Paul is essentially communicating to Timothy that I have given you some sort of blueprint, some sort of building blueprint, and you are to follow this manual. You are to follow this blueprint. But he, he, he clarifies it by describing this blueprint, by describing this pattern, if you will, as being sound words. So Paul is telling Timothy essentially this. If you want to know what the Christian life is, if you want to know what your duty is, I'm the one who's laid it out for you. Both in what I've taught and in the way that I've lived, I have sketched a blueprint for you so that building should not be difficult. You know what I have said and he goes on later on and says, a lot of people know this has been the presence of many witnesses. I've been teaching to you and I've been preaching this to everybody. In the presence of many witnesses, I have laid out for you what you are to believe and how you are to behave. And so he calls Timothy to follow that pattern, to follow that doctrine. 
And so one of the first things that we see about the Christian faith is that we want to have, number one, an apostolic faith. I want to believe not what my culture's pressuring me to believe. I want to believe not what modern day scientists and gurus and all of these people are necessarily developing. We're not supposed to reject everything we hear from them. But ultimately, the heart of my faith is I want, what did the apostles say? What did the apostles leave for us? I want an apostolic faith. I want to follow the pattern of sound words that Paul was saying. I want to walk the road that Paul walked. I want an apostolic faith. And you might say, well, that doesn't make sense because the apostles were, even though they were inspired, after all, they were just men. Don't I ultimately want to be like Christ? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We follow Christ by following the apostles. We believe what Christ wants us to believe by accepting what his messengers gave us. Remember, you do not have a Bible, and this is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to clarify it. Your Bible does not have a single word of Jesus in it. You say, well, the Gospels are filled with the words of Jesus. Well, yes, they are. But Jesus didn't write those. Luke wrote those. Matthew wrote those. Mark wrote those. Now, I am not at all suggesting they're not reliable. Every word that is attested to Jesus in the Bible, I believe and wholeheartedly know Jesus said. I'm not saying he didn't say these things, but here's my point. We are ultimately entrusting ourselves to the apostles and to their companions when we believe that Jesus said and did these things. Because Jesus didn't say them to you and he didn't write them down. Mark wrote them down for us. So we see that Jesus had no problem at all in trusting his ministry to designated men and they became the mouth of Christ. They became the pattern of Christ. Our job as Christians is we want an apostolic faith. And by believing what the apostles believed and taught, we are in that process doing the very thing we ultimately want to do, which is believing what Christ Jesus taught, what Christ Jesus commanded us to do. So Paul is saying, you have heard from me what to believe. You have seen from me how to behave. Do that. So we don't want to abandon doctrine or abandon certain behaviors when it becomes unpopular. Paul doesn't say to win popularity contests. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that I have given to you. Imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. And then Paul reminds us, though, that it's not simply enough to just believe what he believed and, and do what he uh, what he did, Timothy's goal and the goal for the rest of us is to adorn Christian doctrine with faith and love. That's why he says in verse 13, to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he reminds Timothy that it's not simply enough just to know what I said and, and, and hold it in your head as, as factual. But you need to be in Christ, and with your union in Christ, you will be given a faith and a love to adorn these sound words that could not be found outside of Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that outside of Christ, no one can please God, no one can submit to his will, it's impossible to do so. It is only in Christ that true good works, true love, and true faith can be found, and those are the way in which we adorn the apostolic pattern set for us. So Paul here is essentially calling Timothy to holiness and sound doctrine. Follow after these things. Stay the course of sound doctrine. Stay the course of holiness. 
Don't walk away from the doctrines I have given you. Don't walk away from the pattern. Don't walk away from the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But bring these two things together and stay that course. Follow that road. He commands Timothy to follow something, follow that sound pattern. And then he gives them a second command, which is we are to do more than just to follow the pattern of sound words that the apostles, here specifically Paul, delivered. But we are to, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul defines this apostolic faith as being a good deposit. And we talked last week, it's the same word that was used in our last text in verse 13. So Paul is essentially saying this, God has given me something. God has made a deposit in me. He has given me something precious and I have given it to you. This good deposit, this apostolic faith, this is encompassing of the gospel ultimately, obviously, but also just all of the New Testament Christianity. As the book of Jude says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This glorious revealed faith, uniquely inspired through the apostles, was given to them and they've now given it to others. And Paul says, I've given you this thing. It's not just your job to follow it. You need to guard it. What does it mean to guard something? Well, to protect, defend, to believe, to keep it pure. You are not guarding your family if you let intruders break into your house and harm them. That's not guarding your family. When we guard something, we're protecting it and we're keeping it pure. So Timothy is not just to believe the gospel. He's not just to believe Christian doctrine and follow Paul, but he's to guard that good deposit so that people don't steal it from him meaning he wanders off into a false religion and false gospel, and people aren't allowed to distort it and manipulate it. When people speak ill of it or misrepresent it, it's Timothy's job to correct that. J Timothy is called to guard that good deposit, which he says was entrusted to him. It was first given to Paul and then given to Timothy, which again is just a reminder that the Christian faith is something we've inherited. Right? It's not something that the apostles made up. It's not philosophical speculation. It wasn't just a bunch of religious devout men sitting in a room philosophizing and determining, oh, here's what, we, here's what makes sense of reality. No, this is something they've received. It wasn't something that they deduced. It wasn't something they made up. They've received it, and now they're passing it along. The Christian faith is something we are ultimately receiving from God through his intermediaries. And it also reminds us of how valuable it is. You don't tell someone to guard something unless it's sacred. Right? If, if someone asked me to borrow this pen, you know, I would happily give it to you, but I wouldn't preface it by saying, now make sure you guard this good thing that I am entrusting to you. I don't care if you lose the pen, but maybe it had extreme sentimental value to me. Then I might say something like, listen, you can borrow it, but this is really, really important to me. Please don't lose it. So we hear in the apostles' commission to Timothy how valuable this deposit is, that he could tell him, listen, follow this, don't get off course, and guard it with your life. We see how precious this apostolic deposit is to Paul as he tells Timothy to guard it. We are to follow and to guard this good deposit. But here's the good news. Uh, throughout this section, Paul has reminded us of something we need to hear because we need to understand Paul is calling us to do something impossible here. He's asking us to do something impossible. We just don't have the strength to live a Christian life. We don't have the strength to believe it, to accept it, to not fold under pressures and persecution. We don't have it in us. Paul is calling us to something impossible. 
But the reason we're not discouraged is because the same God who commissions us to these things is the same God who provides for us what we need to do that which without him we wouldn't be able to do. Why do I say that? Because he doesn't just legalistically crack the whip on Timothy and say, guard, guard, guard. He reminds Timothy that the grace of God has enabled him to do this because how is Timothy able to guard, beginning of verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is not something Timothy is going to do. He's not just going to champion himself and, and, and push through persecution and push through all of this discouragement and come out on top and say, look how great I am. I wish all these other Christians were as strong as me. No, Timothy is supposed to be dependent on the only thing that could possibly enable him to believe in love and persevere in the Christian faith, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I love is Paul switches from a singular address to a plural. He doesn't say, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So what does that tell us? What that tells us is what Paul is specifically giving to Timothy is, is available to a lot more people than just Timothy. If the Holy Spirit dwell and dwelled only Timothy, then Timothy would have what he needed, but we wouldn't. <laughs> But Paul is reminding the, 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 the fuel that you need has been given to all of us. So Paul is not just telling Timothy, you have been uniquely equipped to persevere in the Christian faith. No, the same well that Timothy is drawing from is a well that all of us own. We all have the ability, we all have the power to follow the pattern of sound words and to guard the good deposit because we can only do this by the Holy Spirit and as we know, the Holy Spirit indwells all his people, not just Paul, not just Timothy. We see this again in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does your strength come from to overcome persecution and overcome fear and overcome doubt? Where does that strength come from? It comes from your union with Christ. And again, that's something that wasn't unique to Timothy. Timothy was not the only person, the only Christian in the first century united to Christ. All Christians are united to Christ. So we see this beautiful testimony that Paul is not talking about some kind of unique gift that Timothy was given for his unique role. Paul is calling upon all Christians who have the Holy Spirit and who have the grace of strength that we find in Christ Jesus to follow the pattern of sound words, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. We have that ability. And it's all because of the grace of Christ which comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And that is an important segue to understanding this week's message in light of last week's message. And here's why, because if we, if we sort of leave out the power of God in us, then we have a bit of a contradiction on our hands, at least how I've been interpreting and presenting the text to you. Why? Because verse 13, or forgive me, verse 12, which we covered last week, who is the one in verse 12 guarding the good deposit? Go back to verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard. So, in verse 12, Paul says, don't worry, I have all the confidence in the world because I know God is guarding the good deposit. And then two verses later, and we're not talking like a, a contradiction way in an Old Testament prophet somewhere. Two verses later, almost immediately after saying God is going to guard this, he tells Timothy, you better guard it. Why is it Timothy's response, that's not my job? 
You see, we are not going to go on a huge rabbit trail here because this is something we could talk the rest of our lives over. But this is introducing to us a doctrine very important to Christianity that we call compatibilism. The doctrine of compatibilism. And, and essentially, the ground that we're, we're, we're pursuing here is this question that is not unique just to Christianity, and not even just unique to our persuasion of Christianity, our particular tradition, but to all theism all over the world. We have this question of how do we understand the, the sovereignty and power and works of God and the accountability and agency of men. How do these things come together? We have that right in front of our face here because on the one hand, Paul is saying God is going to guard this good deposit and I take great hope and trust knowing he's going to guard it. And then he immediately says, Timothy, you need to guard it. Why doesn't Timothy just say, listen, Paul, God's in control, man. I don't got to do anything. God's in control. The doctrine of compatibilism essentially states, states that God uses human means to accomplish his purposes. God uses human agency to accomplish his purposes. So God is going to guard the good deposit and he is going to make sure it's guarded and he is going to establish his church. He's going to grow the gospel and nothing can stop God from doing that. But he wants to use people to do that. So what's the missing link? The effective power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is capable of performing all that the Father desires through any means he deems necessary. So because the Holy Spirit indwells the church and because the Holy Spirit is powerful and efficacious, God can use human agents to accomplish his good purposes. Now, there's still a lot of mystery there, and I think to some degree why we can pursue this and understand it better, there will always be, at least on this side of eternity, a little bit of mystery in this. But here's what I would call us to do whenever we get to these really thick, juicy doctrines. We are not called to be able to understand everything in its fullness before we believe it and act on it. One of my favorite examples ever is Abraham. Abraham and Isaac. Right? The revelation that Abraham had seemed contradictory to Abraham. First, God promises him, I will give you a child and he will bear you seed. So God promises, I'm going to give you a kid and I promise you that kid is going to have offspring. I promise you. And then God gives him a child and before that child gives him any grandchildren, what does God command him to do? Kill him. We have a contradiction on our hands. My child's supposed to bring me grandchildren and I'm going to kill him before he's brought me grandchildren. So what is it? And the book of Hebrews actually gives us an insight into Abraham's thinking. It doesn't tell us this in the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought God was going to resurrect Isaac. That's how he interpreted it. Abraham was convinced that I'm going to kill my son, but God will later resurrect him. Abraham was trying to make sense of the doctrine. He ended up missing the mark a little bit. But you see, notice what Abraham didn't do. I don't get it, so I'm going to disobey. I don't see how they fit together, so I'm out. No, he said, I don't quite understand how this fits together, but I'm just going to not trust in my own understanding, but lean on him who knows all things, and I'm going to follow him. So, so here's what I would say. Even if we don't fully grasp this, here's what the text is telling us. We ought to live our lives and work as if the gospel could be lost from our hearts and from the face of the earth in a moment. But we are to sleep with the comfort knowing it never can. We work as if it can be, but we live and believe and trust and hope knowing it can't be. Right? That's what, God is going to guard it, therefore you guard it. That's Paul's command. 
guard the gospel, protect the gospel. God's using his people to accomplish that purpose. So our job is not to say God's sovereign, so I don't have to preach the gospel, I don't have to try to defend it or carry it on or entrust it, God's going to do it. No, that's not how God's sovereignty works. He uses us by the power of the Spirit. So we work, we guard, we defend, we follow, but then we believe at the end of the day that Christ Jesus will hold us fast. He won't let us go. He won't let his gospel perish. So we see Paul giving Timothy two glorious truths. On the one hand, you are to guard that good deposit with your life. And on the other hand, you are to do that work knowing God will guard it. It's very comforting. Very, very glorious. But before we get to our third and final commandment, Paul sort of interrupts this by reminding Timothy that there are others who have not done what Timothy has done. But he also has examples of those who are doing and who have done it. So Paul sort of interrupts this thought with negative examples and positive examples. And he begins by telling us of these negative examples, people we are not to imitate in our faith. Verse 15, he tells Timothy, you are well aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The, the, the province of Asia back then was not what we think of today. Asia is very, very big today. It was big then, but not as big as modern day Asia. However, Timothy's church, Ephesus, was part of Asia. Asia was broken up into Asia Major, Asia Minor, and Asia. And those three kind of all together made up Asia. And Timothy, Ephesus, was in Asia Minor, I believe. Uh, you might have to double check me on that. But this was the region that Timothy's church was in. And so Paul tells him, you are well aware. So obviously, Timothy's sort of familiar with, with, the, with, the, with the culture of the church in his area. And Timothy knows that over abundantly, the vast majority of Christians in this area are ashamed of Paul. And they have abandoned him. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. And that's, that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, these are people who have downright apostatized. These are people who have walked away from the Christian faith altogether. That's a possibility. But best case scenario, these are people who are ashamed of Paul's chains. They're ashamed and embarrassed of what's going on with Paul. And so they have abandoned him. And he even singles two people out, which this, this really is, is a microcosm of, of a general principle which I want us to understand that being friends with the Apostle Paul was a difficult thing. Being friends with an Apostle was a difficult thing. Being friends with an Apostle was a dangerous thing. And for more reason than one, the first and primary reason was because the Apostles, as the book of Acts tells us, were turning the world upside down. They were changing everything, and a lot of people didn't like this. And so this brought persecution and danger, and so if you were affiliated with them, it was coming for you too. We see in the book of Acts that when, when, uh, when the Apostle Paul and his companions are going through, there's a, this, this scene, it's really amazing, where they want to, the Jews want to go after Paul, and they want to persecute him, and they want to hurt him, and they can't find him. So they go after Jason, because Jason is housing Paul. And they end up taking Jason to the court, beating and robbing him. All Jason had to do was offer Paul shelter, and that put him in the crosshairs. To be friends with Paul was dangerous. But it's also dangerous for this second reason. Because Paul has the power, <laughs> whether he realizes it or not, I don't know, he has the power to completely ruin your reputation for the rest of human history. Right? What do you know about Phygelus? Tell me, tell me about Phygelus. 
Don't really. It's rhetorical. You want to know why? You don't know anything about him except for one thing. He was a coward. What do you know about Hermogenes? You know about his life, the good works he did in his community. Was he really well educated? Did he love children? What do you, what do you know? No, you don't know anything except for this one sentence. That he was a coward. To be friends with the apostles was a dangerous thing. And when Hermogenes and Phygelus and all of these other Christians finally started to experience that, they abandoned ship. However, what we also see is that not everyone did that. Not everyone did that because Onesimus did not do that. But overall, Paul sort of dramatically says all, the vast majority of, in Asia have turned away. And here's what I want to remind us of. Being friends with Paul was dangerous then, but it still is today. We might not have the pressure to be ashamed of his imprisonment because he's long dead, but we still have the pressure of being ashamed of his teaching. One of the greatest difficulties for you as a Christian is to identify yourself with the Apostle Paul's teachings in our day and age. To say things like homosexuality is sinful. To say things like, no, I believe that the man is the head of the wife. These are dangerous things that Paul believed. There's only two genders. Dangerous things that Paul believed. Are we going to cower when it's our turn, when it's our job to step up to the plate and defend Paul? One author said this, this, this problem of being ashamed of Paul was a problem in the first century, but it's still a problem now. Christians are far more concerned with respectability than they are with righteousness. They are more concerned with putting up a fine show before man than with lifting up pure hearts before God. Let any public controversy break out, and many Christians, all who are in Asia, will head for tall grass. And then they will blame the Christian who is standing in the arena facing the lions for being too provocative. The temptation did not end in the first century. We are still called to be apostolic men and women, to believe what they believed, and to proudly associate ourselves with our Bibles. We are called to courage, not cowardice. We are called to righteousness, not respectability. And trust me, being a Christian will oftentimes lose you much respectability. But we are called to not be like Phygelus and Hermogenes, but more like Onesimus. What did Onesimus do? Well, look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Notice how Paul was able to essentially confirm or dismiss these three men with one or two sentences. We want to live lives that if Paul only had one sentence to write about me. It would be something like Onesiphorus. His name in the Greek actually means useful. And he lived up to his namesake. He was useful to Paul. Why? Because he was not ashamed. He was not embarrassed. He did not coward from being associated with him. But on the contrary, he went to Rome and knocked on doors and said, I want Paul. Where is he? Help me find him. 
He publicly and boldly and sacrificially gave his time, his reputation, and his comfort and his safety to help Paul, to unite himself to Paul. And Paul says, see, Timothy, that's what you were to do. Follow the pattern of sound words that I gave to you. You were to follow in our footsteps. You were not to be ashamed of us. And you have great examples in your church, right? You well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is a man in Timothy's church, at least in his region. Look at what he did. Now, there are many who sort of speculate. They actually think that Onesiphorus died in his con- in when he was looking for Paul, or I guess after he had found Paul. They believe he died. And the reason they say that is twofold. One, because in verse 16, Paul doesn't ask that God grant mercy to Onesiphorus, but to his household. And then he immediately turns to asking that Onesiphorus, because of what he did, would find mercy on Judgment Day. So he doesn't ask for grace to be poured out on him now, but on that day. This is certainly possible. I think it's a little more speculation than needs to be, because I think there are very good reasons, without assuming that Onesiphorus died, for why Paul would say this. Why would Paul render mercy to his entire household rather than just to him? Well, I think part of it is the Bible. The New Testament is sort of a household book. Uh, It it sort of uh, addresses men and their household in this way a lot. But I think here's what's more likely the reason. Paul understood that the sacrifice that Onesiphorus made was ultimately a sacrifice for his entire family. They had to all be on board here. Why do I say that? Well, I'm about to remind you of the context of the first century, and I do so for dramatic effect, okay? I don't think that you actually are forgetting these things. So I'm not trying to be condescending, but let's just remind all ourselves that there was no such thing as a cell phone in the first century, So when Onesiphorus is looking at his family and saying, by the way, I I need to go help Paul. There's no such thing as, okay, call us when you land so we know you're okay. As a matter of fact, there's no airplanes, there's no trucks, there's no cars, so this is a long journey. He's going to be gone from his house for a long time. No GPS. So they have no idea how long he's going to be gone. They don't even know if he's going to make it back. And he can't text them along the way to let them know how things are going. So this was basically a goodbye dad, hopefully see you somewhat soon, but maybe won't. Anyone who's married or has a family knows that a sacrifice for one person ends up being a sacrifice for the whole family. Onesiphorus was not the only one who was happy to identify and sacrifice for Paul. His entire family was. They gave up a husband and a dad for a long period of time so that he could travel to Rome, find Paul. We didn't even know how long it was going to take him to find him. Some unknown extended period of time, he was going to be away from the house to which he may never return. And his family, in Paul's mind, said, yeah, go. Paul's worth it. Go. We want to be families like Onesiphorus' family, but uh, why then does he appeal to the day of judgment? Well, I think he does so for two reasons. He just got done appealing to the day of judgment for his own life in verse 12. So I think it's just already on his mind. Paul knows I'm about to die soon, so it's already on his mind. But I think here's what Paul is doing. Paul is reminding us of this. When the culture and the world wants you to abandon Christian faith, wants you to abandon apostolic teaching or abandon a certain way of living, here's what Paul wants us to always think about. I have two potential rewards in front of me. I've got a dilemma in front of me. I can receive the trophies and applause and hoorays from men, or I can find mercy on the day of judgment. 
Paul is trying to tip the scales a little bit and say, if you keep this in perspective for a little bit, you shouldn't even care about the respectability of men because you're not going to care about that when you stand before Christ on judgment day. Paul is leveraging our eternal reward against our temporal rewards. What's more important to you? That everyone in your field respects you or that you find mercy on the day of judgment? What's more important to you? That your family would bring you back in or that you find mercy on the day of judgment? That people on Facebook think you're really smart or that you find mercy on the day of judgment? You see, Paul is showing us that Onesiphorus and his family lived more for eternity than they did for today. There is great reward to be found for just following the pattern of the apostles and keeping the faith and guarding the faith no matter what consequences might come. Just stay the course. There will be a reward. It will be worth it on judgment day to just stay in Christ, to guard the good deposit and not care what the world thinks about us. And then that moves us into our final point Chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are not just called to follow the apostolic deposit. We are not just called to guard the apostolic deposit. We are called to pass it along. We are called to entrust it to others. Paul is a multi-generational thinker. Paul's perspective was not, here's the thing, Christ is coming soon, so you don't need to worry about your next generation, you don't need to worry about your kids or your grandkids or the future. He's coming soon, you just take care of you and he'll come and rescue you out. No, Paul's thinking multi-generational. Paul, Paul interprets the Christian faith as one humongous baton relay race. God, Christ Jesus gave me this baton and I ran the race and I ran hard and I'm coming to the end of my race so I'm giving it to you, Timothy, and I want you to take this baton, guard it, and run the race hard and then I want you to make sure you're handing it off to others who will continue to hand it off. He's thinking multi-generational here. Paul knows that the best way to protect and preserve the faith is to pass it. Christianity is not a private religion. We want to see Christianity grow and expand through our children, through our neighbors. We want to pass it along. But notice, we're not just flippantly passing it along. Specifically, Paul here is asking Timothy to pass it along to faithful men able to teach. This is essentially a summary of what we studied in 1 Timothy, the qualification for elders. This is Paul calling Timothy to ordain pastors. Because remember, the qualifications for elders were twofold. It was holiness, proven holiness, proven faithfulness, and the ability to teach. The ability to teach was not given to the deacons. It was only given to the elders. They have that unique role of proven faithfulness and the ability to teach. And who does Paul say Timothy is to pass the faith along to? Faithful men able to teach. Paul understands the important role of pastors to receive the Christian faith and educate their churches on it. It's crucial. It was especially crucial then because let me again remind us that much of our cultural Christianity was not accessible in the first century. This concept of, I'm going to go to a store and buy a Bible and it's going to be in a language I know and I'm going to have online study tools and commentaries and if I don't like this translation, I'll get a different translation and, and then I'll just study it and I'll, I'll utilize, I'll go onto YouTube and I'll listen to other sermons and I can figure this thing out for myself. When Paul wrote this letter, the Bible hadn't even been finished yet. 
The Bible hadn't even been canonized yet. And the letters that were canonized were still taking, it takes time for these things to be copied and copied and passed and copied and copied. So this, these people had their Old Testaments and they probably didn't have individual ones. There was probably just one for the church. A lot of them probably didn't even know how to read it or study it. Can you imagine the importance? Christianity at this time, it was still a textual religion in the sense that the text was the ultimate standard, but it was very much an oral tradition in how it was being passed on. This was still at this time very much a word of mouth tradition. So it's important whose mouth is given a platform. Who is it that is with authority standing in front of people saying, this is what Paul would have you do. This is what Christ Jesus would have you do. Paul says, this is huge for the advancement of the church. And I would argue that even today, though, we have an abundance of resources that I would encourage all of you to partake of. Buy commentaries, buy books. I, I encourage that. I don't want to ever sort of manipulate power and try to convince you that you can't know God without me. But the word of God does not change, and so we see here the importance of pastors. In a certain sense, Paul is sort of lifting them up as the gatekeepers of the Christian faith. It was important that Timothy pass this along to capable, faithful pastors who will also follow, guard, and then pass it along. And we see this beautiful baton relay race throughout all of human history. And just the last thing I'll say briefly, and it's not to make any general sweeping statements, but I want us to understand that Paul here clearly sees the ordination, the ordaining of pastors as being the, jo the job and the role of the local church. I'm not against seminary. I think seminary is a gift from God. What a blessing it is. Huge blessing. And pastors have every right, if they want to use seminary as a means of equipping the faithful men, that they have every right to do that. That's a beautiful, blessed thing. But let us be careful of assuming that a man cannot be ordained without his seminary degree. Because seminaries ordain nobody. It is not the seminary's job to ordain you. Paul does not, does not resource this role to an outside institution. He keeps it right at home with the local church. He says, Timothy, I trust you to raise up a pastor just as I raised up. I'm not resourcing you to an organization. I'm not resourcing you to a company. Your job is to pass this on. And so we need to understand the primary role of the local church in raising up pastors training and raising up men to pass this thing along to. Again, I'm not bashing seminary. I, I would love to pursue it if God ever opens up the means for me to do it. I would love that. Not bashing it. It's a wonderful tool. But seminaries do not ordain you. The local church ordains you. It was the job of Timothy and the other men that he had risen up raising up to go through and establish more and more. Ultimately, it is the job of the local church to establish elders. And so in conclusion, we have this threefold commandment to keep the faith, to guard the faith, and to pass the faith on. Keep the faith, follow the faith, guard the faith, and pass it on. And we need to be reminded always that we do not do this in our own strength. We do not accomplish this according to our own wit, our own strategies, or our own means, but we do this because we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in us. And we do this because God has given us grace in Christ Jesus we have been enabled and empowered as individuals and as a local church to follow the faith, to guard the faith, and to pass the faith on.